Welcome to Texas True Crime. I'm your host, Jessica. I'm so happy that you are here with me today. I hope that all of you out there had a great week. At my house, personally, we had a long week. I told everybody that we had spent two days out of school last week because of flooding in our area. So by the end of this week, we were all worn out. You know, I know that sounds so whiny. Oh, we had to go to school for five whole days. But y'all, we've been out since Christmas break. We went back to school in January. We have had ice that kept us out for two days for a week. We had Martin Luther King Jr. as a holiday. And then we had flooding that took us out for another two days. So we don't know how to go to school for a regular week. So we were done by Friday night. Anyway, it was nice to have a regular week with a normal schedule, but we're going to have to get back in the swing of things. I even asked my principal, when do we get another break? Joking with her. And I got to look like you better just calm that down. I also wanted to say a huge thank you to my friend Bill at Crimes, Killers, Colts, and Beer. He did our new intro music, you guys, and it's awesome. I am so thrilled with it and I appreciate it so much. Thank you, Bill. Today, we're going to talk about something a little lighter. After Brian Dennecke's story, I thought we would all need a little bit of something lighter. So no murder this week, just a lot of scheming and scheming going on, and some really tall tales told by a guy named T.R. Wright that no one is really sure if any of the stories that he tells are real. But one thing is for certain, and that is that Theodore, a.k.a. T.R. Wright, believes all of his stories, and he is completely full of BS. This is one of the wildest and grandest insurance schemes that the state of Texas has ever seen. It took more than three years for investigators to untangle the web that Wright had woven not only across the United States, but throughout the world. He was well-connected and well-known. T.R. Wright styled himself as a James Bond-like character and documented all of his escapades on social media. His ending couldn't have been more fitting when federal agents surrounded him at Trump International Hotel in Las Vegas to bring him in. It was just like a scene from a movie. So Theodore Robert Wright III started life as just plain old Ted Wright in the small town of Port Kent, New York. Even at a young age, he was already trying to stand out and cultivate a certain image for himself. Port Kent is a working class town, and most of the residents in the mid to late 90s worked at either the local prison or the Bombardier Rail Car Manufacturing Facility. They weren't a fancy kind of community. And if Ted had started going by Theodore, like he did later in life, everyone there would have just assumed that he was putting on airs, trying to be better than he was. And that's exactly what Ted wanted. He wanted to be better than he was or than his classmates were. Now, all of his classmates wore jeans, t-shirts, steel-toe boots, kind of typical high school fare. Ted, on the other hand, like I said, cultivating a special image. He wore a suit and carried a briefcase to school every day. So he was already dressing for the future that he wanted. 
Ted knew then that he wanted to see the world and live an adventurous life, and Port Kent was not going to be part of that future. Ted's family owned a junk shop and a Tex-Mex restaurant that afforded them a nice middle-class lifestyle. But a recession hit the area in the late 1990s when Ted was in middle school, and his parents ended up falling on hard times. They had to sell their home, and the family moved into a small rent house to try and help make ends meet. Ted's brash confidence helped him to become the successful businessman that he did become. And when he was 16, he got a job at the mall at a kiosk selling cell phone accessories. Two years later, the parent company who owned the kiosks went out of business, and Ted's boss told him that as his last paycheck, he could have all the inventory from the kiosks, the signs, all the inventory, the displays, the merchandise, all of it. So Ted took it all and sold it all for a profit, which he then used to set up more kiosks. According to Ted, by the time he was 19, he was worth about $4.5 million. Now, he invested all of it in a kiosk company that he called Ripe Marketing Group, with over 40 locations in the area. He eventually expanded the sales to novelties and games also, not just cell phone stuff. But he had a 2,000% markup on all of his items. You're going to see. Ted's got a pattern. Ted says that while he was on a buying trip to China, he came up with the idea of making a gaming console that could pirate older classic video games like Space Invaders. He called the system Power Player and started selling the consoles wholesale, but decided to drop the business and head to Europe when the FBI started arresting the larger retailers who were selling the Power Player gaming system. Now, this story cannot be confirmed or denied. There is nothing out there to say, yes, this really happened. But these are the kinds of stories that Ted would tell that became his signature kind type of story. Successful business ventures fraught with ske sketchy legal issues, big money involved with high stakes that he manages to weasel his way out of, and always, of course, come out on top. Once the power player fiasco blew over, Ted came back to the States from Europe and bought a junkyard in upstate New York. He began selling car parts online. At that time, online part sales were not really a thing yet, and Ted says that he started getting calls from people all over the country trying to find specific car parts. His business became very successful, and Ted Wright soon morphed into Theodore Robert Wright III, which he would then shorten to T.R. Wright. He thought it sounded way more dashing than Ted. T.R. left upstate New York and followed a girl to Kima, Texas, where he started a business buying old boats that had been wrecked, fixing them up, and reselling them at a much higher price than he paid for them. It was successful. He did well enough that by his late 20s, T.R. was able to buy himself a 110-foot yacht that slept 12 people, and he named it Never Enough. He docked it in Kima, Texas, and rented a house attached to a hangar at the nearby Baytown Airport. Now, Kima and Baytown are in the Houston area along the coast. TR continued to spend his money on other flashy items, fancy cars, expensive watches, boats, and of course, planes. He made sure that he stood out wherever he went. People often saw him driving around Kima in Ferraris, Lamborghinis, or Porsches, 
and he always made sure that he had a beautiful girl on his arm at all times. His constant companions were two men named Shane Gordon, an attorney and family man who was in his mid-40s, and Raymond Fostick, a guy who T.R. met when he came to pump the sewage out of his yacht. He was a natural, now T.R. himself was a natural pilot, and it didn't take long for him to come very skilled at flying pretty much anything he wanted. One guy from the Kima airport even said that T.R. could fly anything he wanted to, anything from a jet to a hot air balloon. So by all accounts, he was a very talented uh, pilot. But as good as he was, T.R. was also reckless. He would often ignore pre-flight instructions and uh, just basically because he didn't want to take the time. He was in too big of a hurry, but that went with his risk-taking personality. That's the thing. T.R. was all about the risk. He was all about the flash. He was all about his image, and he wanted people to think he was a big shot. And for a while, he succeeded fairly well. It's just that when you take that many risks and you're not willing to follow things up with the safety inspections, it's going to come back to bite you in the butt. And when you don't mind doing things illegally. TR started setting corporations up with basic names like Theodore R. Wright Enterprises and government auctions online. There are other companies with names like Sly International Holdings and Carissus, which was Latin for cunning. So, you know, he had a sense of humor and liked to throw it in there from time to time. Now, TR would later use these corporations to move money around and fly under the radar as he scammed insurance companies left and right. In 2012, TR bought a training jet for fighter pilots. The jet needed MiG parts from overseas, so he found a former Soviet test pilot who was able to get the parts for him. When this story was tried, was they tried to confirm it, the Soviet pilot said he might have helped TR, but he really didn't know for sure if he's the one who helped TR, and it could have been someone else, and the parts maybe came from where TR said they were, but maybe not. But let's be honest, TR was shady. Probably the people he was dealing with were shady, and they didn't want to really tell what they'd been up to either. Now, TR said that he handed over a briefcase full of cash and prayed that his parts were going to come in like they said they would. Luckily, the parts did come in, and he soon had more parts than he needed. So, in true TR Wright style, he started selling them online. This opened the door for him internationally. Turns out that it's not just individuals who want old MiG parts. Countries were also looking for deals on parts to maintain their fleets. So, TR became the guy who could get you whatever you wanted and would send it anywhere in the world to you. TR didn't set out to become an arms dealer, but that's what happened. He started shipping not only parts, but helicopters and planes with their weaponry overhauled and ready to go. TR's favorite part of all of it was to tell his friends about his exploits and to post pictures on his social media pages. Pictures of him standing in front of planes and fancy cars, flying a jet in a tuxedo with a pair of aviator sunglasses on. Pictures of him in exotic places, staring off into the distance, sometimes holding a gun. 
you know, he liked to impress people and he wanted to look important. And these were the things he did. He wanted to be flashy. He wanted to look like a man of mystery, an international businessman, but high stakes, you know, everything had to be high stakes and on the edge. TR also liked to impress his dates by calling them on a Monday and saying, hey, would you like to fly to the Bahamas with me for the day? He picked up another date on, the first, on their first night out in a limo just to go to the piano bar. So everything he did was ostentatious. He wanted to make a show. He wanted to make a splash. He wanted people to remember him. TR loved to show off the life that he made for himself, but anyone who called him lucky got a lecture. He told them real quick that it had nothing to do with luck. It was hard work. He liked, like I said, he wanted to portray that modern day image of a James Bond-like character in all high stakes situations. In March of 2012, TR bought a 1966 Beechcraft Baron plane for $46,000 and then turned around and insured it for $85,000. Now that in and of itself is not that unusual. It's fairly common for someone to buy a plane and then insure it for more, mainly because values range quite a bit depending on the model and the year of the plane. But it started a pattern that would end up being TR's undoing. His brash confidence would finally get the better of him. Not long after he bought the plane, he went to a training that included instruction on water landings. TR and his friend Raymond Fostick took the newly purchased Beechcraft out, leaving Texas headed for Florida. Should have been an easy, short little flight. Nothing, you know, crazy. But not long into the flight, the cockpit caught on fire over the Gulf of Mexico. The two were forced to make an emergency landing in the Gulf. The whole landing was captured on an iPad that was in a waterproof case. You can see the video, the two of them floating in the Gulf of Mexico, bobbing around, waiting for the Coast Guard to rescue them. TR is the one who's in charge of filming everything. He puts the iPad on Raymond Fostick, but Raymond really doesn't seem like he wants to be on camera much. But as per usual, TR is eating it up. Naturally, TR posted the video on his social media and it went viral. The pair ended up appearing on the Today Show telling all about their ordeal. And TR was in hog heaven. He loved the attention. Now, TR received the insurance money from the crash and the plane conveniently sank to the bottom of the ocean. So there was no way to know, was it really mechanical malfunction or was there something else going on? On their next venture, the two friends teamed up for a personal injury lawsuit. TR convinced Raymond to sue him after their plane crash. So, Raymond received $100,000 in a settlement from TR's insurance company. Raymond then turned around and transferred $42,000 to TR's company, Carissus. Then, in 2014, TR bought a small jet a 1971 Cessna 500 Citation I for $190,000 through his company. And for anyone out there who is a French speaker, I apologize because I'm about to butcher this. Plaisir in vol, 
That's the name of his company, which means fun in flight, which he co-owned with a Frenchman named Philippe Ardouin. I know I am butchering all those French names, but I did listen to the pronunciations and tried my best. I'm sorry, y'all. TR insured the plane for $440,000. On the morning of September 15th, 2014, the citation was found burned completely in half on the tarmac at the Athens Jet Center in the small East Texas town of Athens. Now, when they say burned completely in half, it was in half. Nose tipped down onto the tarmac going one direction, tail tipped down, touching the tarmac on the other end. Federal agent Jim Reed from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, and from now on we're going to say the ATF, was called by the owners of the Athens Jet Center to come out and take a look. Now, Reed originally thought that he would show up, it'd be your typical insurance claim, no big deal, and they'd be gone, right? But when he got there, it was pretty obvious to him and to everyone that it was arson. It was highly unlikely that a plane just sitting unused on the tarmac would go up in flames. When Agent Reed arrived, he spoke with several people at the Jet Center. They all told him that the citation had shown up about two weeks ago and had just been sitting there ever since. Then. Two days ago, there was a call that the small jet was on fire. Agent Reed reviewed the security footage from the night the fire started. In the footage, he could see the silhouette of a man being thrown from the plane as a ball of fire erupted from the cabin. The man could then be seen running off into the woods behind the tarmac. So Agent Reed started by calling hospitals, burn centers, and morgues in the area. He figured that whoever that was in the video, they must have been badly burned or possibly even dead by now. But no one had come in or been brought in the night the citation caught on fire. So whoever it was, was very lucky because it looked like by all accounts, they walked away unharmed. They even searched the woods where he looked like he ran into, but nothing. Now, the owners of the Jet Center told Agent Reed that on August 29th, a pilot flying a small Beechcraft Bonanza airplane landed and then quickly flew out again. That alone was pretty odd. They said, you know, most people don't fly into small airports, check out the layout, and leave. But to make things even weirder, a few days after that, early one morning, one of the local pilots saw the Beechcraft Bonanza again. The pilot of the Bonanza was checking out the citation, which was still in one piece at that point, parked on the tarmac. When the pilot walked over and approached the man from the Bonanza, he said that his plane wouldn't start. Now, the local pilot was a helpful person, and he offered to take a look. When he got in, the plane started right up, and the pilot of the Bonanza quickly took off. Well, the pilot at the Athens Jet Center thought this was odd, so he wrote down the plane's tail number, which is basically the same thing as its license plate. That day, he shared it with Agent Reed. Reed put a call into the Federal Aviation Administration, and they told him that the Bonanza was in the process of being registered to a new owner as they spoke. The agent actually said that the paperwork was right there sitting on his desk in front of him. The FFA 
AA agent went on to say that the Bonanza had been purchased in 2013 by none other than Raymond Fostick, the same pilot who had been sneaking around looking at the citation before it burned to a crisp. The same person who was T.R. Wright's buddy in crime and in all his other scams. The FAA agent went on to tell Agent Reed that the owner of the citation was named Theodore Robert Wright III, better known as T.R. He was a businessman with an address listed in Kima, Texas. It didn't take much investigation for Agent Reed to find the two men. As soon as he did a quick Google search of their names, the viral video of them floating around in the Gulf of Mexico from their emergency water landing popped right up. Now, here the two men were again linked to another plane on fire. Agent Reed decided that he better start doing some digging. That fall, after the fire, and I'm going to butcher it again, I'm sorry, Placier in Vol filed the insurance claims on the torched citation and TR received the proceeds. Agent Reed took note that TR used the money to buy a Learjet previously owned by tabloid talk show host Jerry Springer. You know, TR liked to make a splash. Slowly, the whole story started to emerge and a long string of fraud started coming out. In March of 2014, TR wrecked his Lamborghini. It crashed into a water-filled ditch and the car was totaled because of water damage. TR had purchased the Lamborghini for $76,000. His insurance company paid him $169,554 for it. TR Wright had created a number of shell companies designed to hide the fact that he was the true owner of all of these businesses. He would then buy a boat, a plane, or a car under one of the company's names he owned and create documents making it appear that he sold the item at a much higher price to a different company. But it would really just be another company that TR owned himself. So the money always ended up back with him no matter where it went. It's a paper trail that if the insurance company or anyone does any due diligence, they see an official notarized stamped sealed bill of sale from an aircraft escrow and a trust and a lawyer that shows, oh no, they paid this much for it. So it takes the red flag out of the equation, I guess, Wright explained on the show American Greed. So he had figured things out for the most part. He also didn't seem to waste much time between each of his schemes. In October of 2014, TR bought a 1998 Hunter Passage sailboat in Honolulu, Hawaii for $50,150. He sold the sailboat a month later to a man in Honolulu named Edward DeLima for $193,500. Now here's where it gets convoluted. TR had loaned this money to DeLima, and I hope you catch the emphasis I use on sold and loaned. TR had loaned this money to DeLima through a mortgage company that he and his business partners created. 
Now, the boat unsurprisingly sank in a marina under mysterious circumstances. In 2015, Delima had the Hunter Passage insured for way more than it was worth. Surprise, surprise. And he handed over $180,023.80 to his mortgage company after the insurance paid out. The mortgage company was held in the name of T.R. Wright. As more and more bank and phone records arrived, Agent Reed uncovered one scheme after another. By April 2016, Reed had followed the paper trail for as far as he could, so he decided it was time to start interviewing the people that T.R. Wright had enlisted to help him with his schemes. He decided that he would start with Edward DeLima. They didn't seem to be very close friends, like T.R. and Raymond Fostick or Shane Gordon were. He figured that DeLima would be the least loyal to T.R. and wouldn't give him a heads up that the ATF was investigating him. He also figured he was far enough away in Honolulu that there was a good bit of distance between them also. So Agent Reed boarded a plane to Honolulu to see if he could get DeLima to talk to him. It turned out to be surprisingly easy. Agent Reed showed up with a local agent at DeLima's place of work. They asked him to walk out to the car with them and laid everything out for him. Now, DeLima was a registered sex offender with a sketchy history with boats anyway, so he decided that it would probably be in his best interest if he cooperated with the authorities. He started talking, and he told Agent Reed how TR approached him to pretend to own the boat. Delima said that TR promised him a large cut of the insurance money, but he ended up only giving him a few thousand dollars. Here's the deal, TR. If you're going to do a scheme, whatever you promise the people that help you, you should probably give them the money and not leave them disgruntled. It's going to give them less opportunity to feel like they should just rat you out anyway. It was good information, and Reed could have gotten an indictment out of it, but he knew that he would need more if he really wanted to prove everything that TR had been up to. So he started digging around in Raymond Fostick's background. It turned out that Fostick was a convicted felon. And, and you know, Fostick liked to post pictures on his social media just like TR. And some of Fostick's Facebook posts, he was holding a firearm. Well, as a felon, you know how he's not allowed to do that. So, with that information in hand, Agent Reed went over to Raymond Fostick's upscale apartment complex in Kima to see what he could get out of him. Again, it ended up being surprisingly easy. Just like DeLima, Fostick gave everything up. He even shared emails and text messages between him and TR, laying out all the little details of the Athens fire scheme. He also told Agent Reed that on the day that they crashed in the Gulf of Mexico, none of those details were actually shared with Raymond. TR crashed that airplane so that, without Raymond's knowledge, so that when they were on film, it would seem realistic and sincere. But Raymond also said that that was typical of TR. Once he decided to do something, he really didn't think things through. He just acted. He just did it. The evidence kept piling up, so Agent Reed decided to go back to Kima 
and talked to the pilots at the airport to see what they would say. He acted as if he was just there completing a standard insurance inquiry after the citation fire. But even the locals suspected that TR had been up to something fishy. They all said that he was a likable guy, but many said they had figured that eventually someone was going to start asking questions about him. They were surprised that it had taken as long as it did. During all of this, TR met a woman named Amy Polston. She was an attorney out of California that he met while he was making a deal. He was smitten. He immediately became a one-woman man, and the two quickly married. In 2015, the couple had a baby girl and continued their jet-setting lifestyle, but this time as a family. There were pictures of the family in front of the Dead Sea, wandering the streets of southern France, and boarding a plane to some other far-off exotic destination. TR even changed the name of his yacht from Never Enough to his daughter's name. Even though he'd become a full-fledged family man, he still liked to keep things exciting. TR told Texas Monthly he flew a 737 he'd bought, a mobile command center, into a desert base in Israel where civilian planes rarely go. This is what he said. I land and I've got with me my wife and daughter who is in a baby Bjorn under my suit jacket. And I get out of the airplane into the Israeli desert and I start walking the F-16s to pick out which blocks I'm going to buy. The Israelis, he said, looked at him, with his wife and daughter in tow, in disbelief. Even though photography was forbidden at the base, Amy snapped pictures of their daughter playing with rocks as rows of surplus F-16s and mirages sat in the background. So it sounds like Amy enjoyed this fancy high-stakes lifestyle herself because I don't know about y'all, but I'm not taking my baby on a plane to Israel and landing to look at F-16s and then take some illegal pictures while I'm out of it. Probably not going to happen. Agent Reed felt like he finally had enough information on TR by the summer of 2017. He'd He'd been working on all of it for over three years at this point. But now he needed to find a place that he could arrest TR and make sure that he wouldn't get away. In fact, he became very worried that TR was going to catch wind of the investigation and he was going to take off. He had a passport, a pilot's license. He could go anywhere in the world that he wanted, but he lucked out. In June, he got word that TR was going to be working on a business deal in Las Vegas at the Trump International Hotel. Agent Reed called the U.S. Marshal Service in Nevada, got on a plane the next day. He thought they would spend a day or two making a plan to arrest TR. But when he walked into the Las Vegas ATF office, local agents and marshals were ready and waiting for him. They were just as eager as Agent Reed. We're going to go get this guy, one of the agents said. They were already ready. They had a plan in place. They immediately drove to Trump International Hotel Las Vegas, where Agent Reed knew TR was going to be. He met with the other marshals and agents who'd arrived earlier in the lobby. The group had set up a sting beyond anything Agent Reed had ever seen in person. It was like a scene out of a movie. A dozen agents, dressed to blend in, were stationed inside and outside the hotel. Now, TR, in an interview, swore there were agents dressed as a janitor with a push broom, a gardener, a tourist with a camera, a man dressed in a full cowboy outfit, and one guy dressed like the Indian from the village people. Reed stood in the hotel lobby, trying to decide his next move, when T.R. stepped out of the golden elevator. 
TR was carrying a Louis Vuitton briefcase with $70,000 cash, along with the title for a Ferrari, two pistols, he says he never leaves home without one firearm, and two cell phones, one of them a burner. He headed toward the front doors and went straight out to the valet to pick up his car, a Ferrari. Of course, something flashing. Agent Reed followed him out the door and said, T.R. Wright, we have a federal arrest warrant. T.R. turned around and asked, what's going on? With a look of shock on his face. The agent grabbed the briefcase and checked the contents. T.R. claimed he was just going out to run some errands. Sure you are, with $70,000 in a briefcase and some burner phones and a two pistols. That's how I run my errands. What about y'all? Now, Agent Reed was so worried that T.R. was going to take off. I mean, naturally so, right? So he petitioned the court to put him in jail and leave him there till his hearing. But they let him leave on bail with an ankle monitor. But Reed was anxious and nervous for the next 10 days until T.R. walked into the federal courthouse in Beaumont, Texas with his family. The hearing took hours as T.R.'s escapades were shared with the judge. It's one of those things that these kinds of hearings usually take about 20 to 30 minutes. They were there for forever. It was a lot to unravel. T.R. pled guilty to conspiracy to commit arson and conspiracy to commit wire fraud, and he was sentenced to five years and five months in a low-security federal prison in Big Spring. He was also ordered to forfeit his Learjet and to pay $988,554.83 in restitution to various insurance companies. The $70,000 confiscated from him in Las Vegas was applied to that restitution. His accomplices, Fostick, Gordon, and DeLima, pled guilty soon afterward, and his Frenchman partner, Ardouin, was deported. A few months into his sentence, his wife told him to no longer contact her, and they were soon divorced. TR does say that that's the biggest regret. He still loves Amy Polson and wishes that things would have worked out better. Even from prison, TR said that he didn't have any regrets. He says, I can't say that I regret doing it, but I regret the way I did it. If I could do it again, I would have been alone. I mean, if you commit a crime with someone who you can't trust who ends up being a rat, that's a problem. Most of his animosity goes towards Raymond Fostick, not the other guys. I don't know why. I guess maybe Raymond was in on more things with him than the others. But that's who he holds the most animosity towards. T.R. Wright is out of prison now. He has an active Instagram account, but it says it's set to private these days and that he is retired. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Like I said, needed something a little bit lighter after last week's episode. Uh, let me know your thoughts, share your ideas, give me some new case ideas. I have some stuff I'm working on that you guys have requested. I appreciate anytime you send me a request or share your feedback with me on other cases. If you would like to get in contact with me, you can find me on Instagram at Texas True Crime Pod. You can find me on Facebook at Texas True Crime, or you can always send me an email at Texas True Crime Podcast at gmail.com. If you like what you hear, please remember to leave a five-star review and tell a friend about the podcast. Thanks for listening this week, and I'll see you next week.
Bye.